0: America is at an inflection point, one of those moments that determine the shape of everything that's to come after. And now, America must choose to move forward or to move backwards, to build a future or obsess about the past, to be a nation of hope and unity and optimism, or a nation of fear, division, and of darkness angry republics have made their choice. They embrace anger. They thrive on chaos. They live not in the light of truth, but in the shadow of lies. But together, together we can choose a different path. We can choose a better path forward to the future. A future of possibility, a future to build and dream and hope.
1: And we're on that path moving ahead. Season 3, Episode 2, Currently Incarcerated. Welcome to Capital Insurrection Report, a podcast dedicated to news and analysis concerning the January 6th, 2021 attack on our nation's capital. I'm Scott Kuhn. The intro to this week's show is provided, of course, by President Joe Biden from his September 1st speech advocating for democracy and unity in America in front of Independence Hall in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We're still waiting the announcement of the next promised public hearing of the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack, which will be held sometime after Congress returns from recess next week. Much of the January 6th reporting of late has been focused on the Mar-a-Lago case, the stolen documents, the stolen classified documents, and the progress of that investigation and the shamelessness with which the president, former president, 45th president, failed, uh, stole them and stored them in, inappropriately on a country club in Florida in the wake of his failed Q attempt. I'll be talking a little bit about that, as well as the arrest of Oath Keepers General Counsel Kelly Sorrell and an extended defendant profile in this episode, as well as some other recent events. I'll also uh, focus quite heavily on what's happening with regard to the the news cycle in the the Mar-a-Lago case, but more than that, on some independent research. Now, it appears like we are in a bit of a holding pattern uh, until the next hearing, even though there, there have been a lot of events, right? Steve Bannon getting arrested in New York State, right? So I've used this opportunity to really continue the research that I presented in the last episode. Last time, we looked at the universe of cases from June through mid-August, and I was pretty pleased to have answered at least some of the questions that I had had with regard to the decline in arrests over the summer. So if you don't follow the show on Twitter, you should. It's at CapInserep. C-A-P-I-N-S-U-R-R-E-P. Now, in the wake of that episode, I had any number of great conversations with listeners, and I really appreciate the conversations that we have here. I inevitably learn a lot, particularly from people who challenge my ideas and pet theories. But, of course, I've also learned a lot alone, sitting in my office, reading, reading, uh, and particularly over the process of examining the universes of cases over the summer. When I say universe, I mean you know, basically all the cases, right? Uh, so in social science, you know, you're, it's an issue of case selection. Um, getting all the cases, you know, and oddly enough, there's ambiguity about how that word is used, right? You know, there's cases in social science and then there's cases in legal sense. Just so happens that there's overlap here. In any event... I learned a lot in that process, uh, such as the finding that 22 out of the 23 cases were cases that were either multiple defendant cases, or cases in which the defendant was connected in some way to a group, whether that be a family group, or an extremist group, or uh, in some cases, a a buddy who they weren't charged with, uh, like in Kostalski. Um, Now, in the conversation with listeners on Twitter, uh, some folks raised some points that hadn't occurred to me. Uh, for one, the idea that uh, perhaps the, the reason why there's been this slowdown was that there was this choke point. Now, um, you know, I, I I floated this idea, right? That, you know, hey, maybe this is, but then I dismissed it. And then actually other people came forward and said, no, actually that, that could well be the case. So what does that mean? There are only so many hours in the day, and only so many judges on the bench. Even if there are hundreds of outstanding potential defendants who have yet who've been identified, it doesn't really do a lot of good to charge them if the courts can't process them. You have things such as the Speedy Trial Act, for example, to consider. that That's mainly the thing that you need to consider. So the Department of Justice might be parsing these cases out. That could be yet another explanation. You know, again, it's a workload-based explanation, um, but it has to do with you know a different set of actors, right? You see, in the last episode, what I had been thinking about, you know, with regard to the workload, I was really focused on the resources available to the FBI and the AUSA's, but we've also reached a point where. More and more, the workload, and particularly the docket at the DCD, is also a factor. Now, hopefully they're going to be able to keep the statute of limitations in mind, because we might not be able to get to all the defendants at the current rate, especially if they maintain this rather sluggish rate they had over the summer. So in any event, while they've been using the idea of complexity as an explanatory variable in this context, like many other things, yes, this slowdown may have something to do with workload, but it may be the workload at the DCD rather than the DOJ. Now, if that's the case, it might be a great idea for them to just add some judges, although, of course, that would take an act of Congress. Um, but also, as one listener noted, you get more bang for your from your buck for a multi-defendant case than from a single-defendant case. So, if spaces on the docket are scarce, it also might make some, some sense from a workload point of view to focus on these kinds of cases. So, if you did listen to the last episode, thanks. If you didn't, please go back and give it a listen, although it's not absolutely necessary, I suppose, uh, to have that context uh, before listening to this one. It might be a little helpful. In any event, the main body of this episode is going to consist of uh, more original research on a, a different universe of defendants, the uh, sentence defendants in the January 6th attack. So, actually, I did this earlier this week. At that point, there were only 249 sentence defendants. So I was actually in a very unusual position at that point. Um, no one, either in journalism, Department of Justice, or, well, Department of Justice, they wouldn't make that public, Uh, Any academic institution or think tank had really looked at the data on sentence defendants in the way that I looked at it. Now, I know some things about the disposition of sentence inmates that, you know, apparently just because no one's ever bothered to go through this rather boring and laborious process of looking them up on the publicly available open source uh, tool that the DOJ provides, which I've linked to in the show notes, um... Yeah, I, I, I was able to learn a few things. I had nine findings, some of which may seem trivial, uh, some of which I think are rather interesting. So I will be sharing that with you in the last half of the episode. So that's pretty cool. You know, I know something nobody else knows at this point, and then, you know, I'm going to share it with you. So um, why do social science? Hey, that's, that's what it's all about. You don't know until you look at the data. So, that's what I'm going to do in the second half of the episode, and we're going to be looking at the designations process. In other words, what prisons, what facilities uh, are sentenced inmates being sent to, and what does that mean, right? So, you know, if you've ever seen prison movies, you know there are different kinds of prisons. What kinds of prisons are they being sent to? Uh, Where are those distributed geographically, and what does that mean? Uh, especially for those inmates who are serving longer sentences. And what does it say about the uh, efforts to manage these inmates, uh, particularly since we have seen so many problems in managing the inmates in pretrial detention in the uh, January 6th wing and the, at the jail in DC. All right, but before we get to that, uh, it's time to do the numbers, as always, sourced from Sedition Track. There have been a total of 871 individuals charged, an increase of 16 since the last tally. There have been a total of 391 indictments, up one. Six deceased, no change there. One dismissal, same. One acquittal, same. 403 convictions, an increase of 15 since the last tally. And 254 sentences, an increase of 13 since the last tally. So, I expect that those numbers, uh, moving forward, the convictions and the sentencings are actually going to track one another fairly closely. And you'll notice that the number of individuals charged is also about the same. So, that's what I mean when I say there's a choke point at the DCED, and perhaps that is the limiting factor uh, with regard to, um, you know, I don't know, like a, they've got like a restrictor plate uh, at the, the Department of Justice. Um, and so they are basically charging these defendants as slots open up on the docket. Could be wrong. Could be due to something else. Again, there's a theory I talked about last episode that the slowdown is due to, in part to the possibility that uh, the FBI and the Department of Justice are working on something big. Who knows? I would love for that to be the explanation. The defendant profile this week is Kelly Sorrell, the general counsel of the uh Oath Keepers paramilitary gang. Sorrell's an attorney who operates in the town of Granville, Texas, population 10,958. Sorrell also served briefly as the president of the Oath Keepers after Stuart Rhodes was charged with seditious conspiracy earlier this year. Sorrell is probably best known for her appearance with Stuart Rhodes, uh, again, Rhodes from the Oath Keepers Enrique Terrio from the Proud Boys and Bianca Gracia of Latinos for Trump in a meeting in an underground garage in D.C. on January 5th, which was captured of 2021, uh, which was captured by a documentary film crew. I talked about it in the show earlier. Um, if I mean, if you're following January 6th, you know about the garage meeting, right? So Terrio had been arrested and released. And uh, the story last spring... According to now disbarred attorney John, Jonathan Mosley, who was representing Rhodes at the time, um, the claim that they made was that Theriault was merely asking Kelly Sorrell about the possibility of obtaining legal representation in his case where he was being charged with destroying Black Lives Matter flag and having high capacity magazines. Now this, of course, this claim to me appears absurd. If you're a high profile defendant in DC, you probably aren't going to ask a small-town Texas lawyer for a referral for a criminal defense attorney. Now, the audio in the underground garage meeting isn't clear, but at one point, the participants in the conversation do bring up the Capitol. So that really draws Mosley's claim that it was all about finding a lawyer for Terrio into further doubt. Um, you know, again, he had been under orders to, to leave town immediately. But for some reason, you know, the first thing he does is, is he meets up with the leading figures who are organizing January 6th. Right, You've got the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys who are going to participate in the attack or slash provide security, right? Uh, you've got Latinos for Trump and uh, Bianca Gracia. I always want to say Gracia. It's grass, yeah. Uh, you know. So this this little uh, summit, almost really, of organizers of people who are going to be involved in the attack, um, is you know very noteworthy. We don't know what was said. Kelly Sorrell knows what was said. So it's again significant that she's been arrested. Of course, regular listeners in the show are also going to be familiar with Kelly Sorrell from her appearance in Exhibit 10 in the Vallejo Discovery material, which was, of course, a transcript of an Oathkeeper's go-to meeting video conference from November 9th, 2020. Now, I know I keep harping on this, I feel that this is a very important piece of evidence moving forward. It shows the Oath Keepers were working with the RNC, Giuliani, and the Trump campaign, at least that's what she claims in the transcript, as well as a group that Sorel calls the back-channel pod, and also describes it as the QAnon crowd uh, who Sorrell claims that she likes. So it shows active participation by Sorrell acting as the attorney for the Oath Keepers in the election disinformation campaign in the run-up to January 6th. And interestingly, it also deals with classified information, uh, something that seems particularly relevant of late, so I will quote from the transcript. Page 185, if you're reading along with your notes. Rhodes. So she's got messages on them that the president should do a data dump. And just a few hours later, Sorrell, yeah. Rhodes, that's when Don Jr. said that on Twitter. It's a pretty good chance that that's something that, Sorrell, is on the table. So again, this refers to the declassify everything campaign. The idea that they were going to take down the deep state by declassifying all these secrets. Which secrets? I don't know. Is there an overlap between these secrets and the boxes of material in the basement at Mar-a-Lago? Now, this is a question to me, right? And I'll talk, you know, a little bit later about the motivations Trump may have had for retaining that material. But... Golly gee, you know, I I have had this sort of gut feeling all along that this is not really necessarily separate, that January 6th is going to be involved and implicated in the classified document theft case. So there's a possibility that Sorrell's arrest might actually even be relevant to that. In any event, the Exhibit 10 material shows coordination at some level between the Oath Keepers other actors, possibly the Flynn Network, and Donald Trump Jr. So, on November 9th, 2020, right? That's an early date. That is very early in the process. The election disinformation campaign was important enough that the committee held an entire hearing on the subject, although they didn't mention Sorel's involvement, although she was deeply involved with Lawyers for Trump and uh, in Michigan and elsewhere. So, Look to the things that we don't necessarily know, the things that they're not saying in in the committee, but that we can find documentary evidence and other things. Now, why wouldn't they talk about this in the committee? I think that, that this is yet another case where the committee is trying to preserve the integrity of the most important parts of the case that will eventually be brought against Donald Trump and his inner circle. Now, one final note on Exhibit 10. Uh, it shows that the so-called Clean Coup was really Plan B from early on. Now, I know there's disagreement on this. Uh, some people are explicitly saying that, well, the January 6th attack was Plan B. Um, it's crowdsourced. Everyone's had a Plan A and a Plan B. That's also the theory. But I really think that the Clean Coup was ancillary to it, and that the real plan was going to be attacked. Maybe they hadn't decided on January 6th yet, um, but it was pretty clear that the plan was to attack. And I find support for this, again, in what Sorrell had to say in Exhibit 10. And here she is discussing the work of the various pods who at that point were mobilizing to engage in the election disinformation campaign, but were already discussing some other things, as we'll see. Quote, Sorrell. I will say that we have, over the last few days, have transitioned in conversation from suit filings, which there will be suit filings, so we don't think there's not going to be that. But also talk of things like insurrection and rebellion is probably more the terminology, and collusion and RICO filings and things like that. So here we have Sorrel talking about insurrection on November 9th. Now, whether that be insurrection by the part of people like the Hoof Keepers and Proud Boys or invoking the Insurrection Act, you know, ultimately it's all that, right? That's, that's what I believe. And she clearly has access to some sort of communications possibly involving the people she mentioned by name, right? The RNC, Giuliani, and the Q people, whoever that may be, you know, Phil Waldron, who knows, Uh, People in the Flynn circle, perhaps. So, we know that Sorrell has been cooperating with the committee, and presumably the Department of Justice. Now, I want to be clear here. She is a a fabulist, but nonetheless, she clearly was a participant in the discussions that ultimately I think will get us closest to Trump of any of the defendants to date. Now, regret, regrettably, the, the part of her testimony, the very quick part that they showed in the committee, made more of a splash because she's decided to use the, the queer eye apartment, uh, I believe it's like the kitchen, the bar, uh, with the backsplash, very nice, uh, in the background, rather than the yeah, actual substance of her testimony. Like the media focuses on, oh, isn't this funny? She's using this popular television show background, rather than actually the content of what she said, which was explosive. So that's yet another reason to hate the media. Focusing on style over substance, they focused more on that background than they did what she you know, what she actually had to say, which was this. Kelly Sorrell, a lawyer who assists the Oath Keepers and a volunteer lawyer for the Trump campaign, explained to the committee how Roger Stone and other figures brought extremists of different stripes and views together. You
0: mentioned that Mr. Stone wanted to start the Stop the Steel series of rallies. Who did you consider the leader of these rallies? It sounds like, from what you just said, it was Mr. Stone, Mr. Jones, and Mr. Ali Alexander. Is that correct? Those are the ones that became like the, the center point for everybody.
1: Now that is rather remarkable, right? It's such a short clip, but it says so much. Sorrel has some first-hand testimony regarding the involvement of Roger Stone, Alex Jones, and Ali Alexander, whether she was in communication with those people directly, maybe, you know, through friends of Stone group chat, um, you know, or whether she was just talking to people, you know, we don't know. But, that again, the committee, it's not to keep it out of the public eye, right? I think they want to disclose this material, but this is the kind of material that is going to feature in future cases. She's talking about Giuliani. She's talking about the Q the people. She's talking about Roger Stone, Alex Jones, Ali Alexander, right? So this is evidence that potentially is explosive. So, you know, I mean, Sorrell's not speaking off the cuff. But, you know, just responding to and agreeing with a restatement of something that she had said, right? So, I mean, I wonder what that original statement was and whether or not they need to restate it simply to make it more clear uh, or what the purpose of that was. In any event, you know, I fully expect this is going to come up in some charging documents at some point. So, the question is, if Kelly Sorella is cooperating... Why charge her? Well, to my mind, it's very similar to Michael Green, the so-called operations leader, who was brought in by Rhodes to be in overall tactical command on January 6th. Although, of course, you know, Rhodes absolutely dictatorially reserved control over big things like whether or not they're going to storm the Capitol uh, to himself. Um, Now, at Rhodes' pretrial detention hearing, if you'll recall, I believe I have mentioned this. I listened in on that. And Rhodes seemed to want to bring in Green. He was in court. I wanted to bring him in to vouch for Rhodes as a character witness. But Judge Maida put the kibosh on that, interestingly, at the time. Judge means was like, I, I don't think we need to hear from this person today. Um, so, ultimately, Green gets charged later, right? So, we don't know if, if you know, did Maida realize that? Um, or, you know, did someone tip them off being like, look, there's, there's going to be someone coming in. Probably don't need an unindicted co-defendant who may be cooperating or not cooperating. But, you know, to my mind, there was always a question of Green's cooperation. Um, but ultimately, they wound up charging him. And it's something similar here with Kelly Sorrell. Uh, Rhodes' attorneys are complained, well every time we, we want to look at calling a witness This person winds up being indicted. Well, yeah, I mean, your witnesses are are your co-conspirators. So, you know, of course, right? Find someone, if you want a character witness, uh, who who wasn't involved. And actually, it looks like he's trying to do that. Um, So there's speculation of whatever kind of cooperation Terrell might be providing, that the point behind these charges is to prevent her from testifying on behalf of Rhodes. Um, although I don't know, you know, what she would say, right? I mean, because they've used so little of it, uh, other than perhaps to, you know, maybe point fingers at Flynn, Stone, Jones, Alexander, and other people, right? Um, And, you know, if you go to her Twitter feed, I mean, she's asked questions like, you know, am I the patsy? Uh, You know, I mean, maybe Michael Green uh, could be asking himself those kind of questions as well, right? So... Who knows? But, you know, if the people who are going to wind up talking are motivated by feelings that they were set up and they are being the patsy, great. I don't care. But let's get people cutting deals and getting testimony and moving up the food chain. So, you know, I'd love to see uh, her pointing these fingers at these people. But there's also the broader point that Sorel is someone who's going to endorse some pretty kooky ideas, which may be one of the reasons why the clip that the committee used was so short. I mean, what's it like to put someone like Sorrell on the stand? We've seen some of that this past week with Rhodes and his sort of chaotic legal maneuverings where he's wanting to try to fire his whole legal defense team in this huge, seditious conspiracy case that could put him away for life, right? Just because he wants to delay the trial for, further. I mean, that's a, that's a bold strategy. It's a it's a dumb strategy. Um, and Sorrell, similarly, as we'll see in a moment, has some rather strange ideas. And so what does that mean for the Department of Justice or the committee to rely on someone? Like, I would not want them to do what they did with... Uh, Van Pattenhove for example, right, you know, put him in front of the committee, putting her on live television might be a bad idea. Um, she might be an effective witness for Rhodes. Um, you know, again, he's adopted what appears to be the, the Bannon strategy of just chaos and delay. But, you know, the, this, the kookiness, as we'll see, um, means I don't know if it, it would really work well to build a case on her testimony For the government, so an example of this is one of the things that she is known for, and that Jamie Raskin actually made reference to in the introduction to uh, the bit of testimony that they used in the committee is uh, her work on a case that was filed on behalf of Latinos for Trump and some other plaintiffs, um, which of course again, Latinos for Trump, headed by Bianca Garcia. again, doing it again, Uh, you know, the person she happened to bump into in the garage, Um, and uh, Blacks for Trump, and Joshua Macias, who's the co-founder of Vets for Trump, right, so basically these Trumpist front groups, and, you know, working as a volunteer attorney on behalf of them, so she's, this is the Gondor has no king case, with which some people might be familiar uh, but we'll talk about it, especially for the people who are not. In one of the documents, one of the filings, um, they decide to refer to Bianca Gracia by her initials and some other defendants by their initials. It's rather strange. Saying, quote, Plaintiffs with initials are so named due to the reasonable fear of their personal safety if their identity is made public as a result of this lawsuit, end quote. So again, that is weird, right? So you've got these people, you know, I mean, there's the name plaintiff, right? The Latinos for Trump, for example, is one of them. And then you've got, you know, um, BG, identified by initials. Well, Bianca Garcia is publicly known, I mean, that she is the head of Latinos for Trump. What's the point of identifying this person by their initials? make it make sense. It it, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, it's it's kind of bizarre reasoning that, you know, um, this weird kind of almost magical thinking that you don't see in court filings. Especially, by the way, the idea that, you know, these people who include militants, paramilitaries, you know, that the main threat is to them from the general public. When I think that these are people who really are a threat to the general public. The threat is coming from them. Um, you know, one of the other defendants who's just identified by his initials is J.J. of Alabama. You know, it's, like, it's mysterious, right? But then later on in the very same document, they talk about a J. James, right? So it's like, okay, well, J.J. is clearly J. James, and that's clearly, you know, it's not hard to figure out. It's Joshua James, right? So, you know, I mean, they're doing this weird, quote, security thing, but, phew, I mean, th- then they're just totally blowing the, the cover of uh, all of these people, uh, you know, bizarre. And of course, yes, Joshua James, if that name is familiar to you, uh, you should probably remember Joshua James ultimately flipped and pleaded guilty to seditious conspiracy and obstruction of an official proceeding this past March. So we're going to be seeing him uh, and perhaps some other evidence that he's presented in the upcoming Oathkeeper's trial. Now, ultimately, the, the judge's response to this, this idea that you're, you've got plaintiffs who are simply listed by their initials as though they're, you know, um, I mean, again, this is bizarre, right? It's a civil case. You know, why do you have plaintiffs listed by their initials? The judge handled this in, in a footnote. The magistrate judge wrote, quote, generally, parties to a lawsuit must identify themselves in their pleadings, end quote. Now, I'm not an attorney. I don't understand the finer points of the law. Um, you know, I, I know that you've got statutory law. Uh, you've got common law. Uh, you know, now attorneys like to, to file these different kinds of law to support their argument and the desired outcomes that they'd like to get from the court. Sorrell, in this case, uh, decided to go a different route. Instead of citing common law legal traditions and rulings uh, or various acts that are enacted by Congress, she cited a higher authority, J.R.R. Tolkien. Quoting again from her case, quote, Gondor has no king. To invoke a very appropriate quote from J.R.R. Tolkien's epic classic, Lord of the Rings, The judicial branch is currently the only remaining legitimate branch of government, and therefore has a duty to uphold the checks and balances in the Constitution, to curb the unlawful power grab perpetrated on the electorate by the defendants. So I'm really astounded here, right, by this assertion that this quote is very appropriate. No, it's not, right? I mean, if you're going to cite dead Englishmen, you know, I mean, cite someone who's least relevant to, uh, you know, English cases that were decided before the Revolutionary War. Don't don't cite Tolkien and uh, you know things that happened in Middle Earth. Now, as as if that wasn't bad enough, all right? I mean, that's Okay, you could leave it at that, right? You know, Gondor has no king. But no, she goes on, and I think it's a second footnote, and she she goes on about this in an extended footnote to explain her her legal reasoning here. Quote, During the course of the epic trilogy, the rightful king of Gondor had abandoned the throne. Since only the rightful king could sit on the throne of Gondor, a steward was appointed to manage Gondor until the return of the king, known as Aragorn, occurred at the end of the story. This analogy is applicable since there is now in Washington, D.C., a group of individuals calling themselves the President, Vice President, and Congress who have no rightful claim to govern the American people. Accordingly, as set forth in the proposed temporary restraining order, As a remedy, the court should appoint a group of special masters, the stewards, to provide a check the power of sick, right? To provide a check, it should be a check on the power, to provide a check on the power of the illegitimate president until this constitutional crisis can be resolved through a peaceful process of a preliminary injunction hearing and a jury trial on the merits. So, yeah, as a principle, some people might find this appealing, right? We could dispense with our existing legal traditions, fire all the lawyers and judges, and have our legal system governed by nerds, whose entire legal education would be provided by the works of Tolkien, particularly The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, The Cimmerillion, The Adventures of Tom Bombadil, and essentially the entire Middle-Earth canon. Um, you know, anyone who's actually been on the internet, uh, would probably think that turning our judicial system into Reddit would be a terrible idea, but that's, that's what Sorrell is doing here, right? You know, it's like, let's insert our fandom into our legal case where we argue that the entire government of the United States that's currently constituted is illegitimate. What? No. Yeah. And, you know, not only that, I mean... She's misunderstanding the whole point, of course, right? If you're going to pick a fictional monarchy on which to base it, our adjudication of constitutional law, why would we pick Gondor of all places? And of course, you know Trump is not Aragorn, right? So you know I don't know how she even. It's just ludicrous, either from a legal standpoint or even from like a Middle Earth fandom standpoint. It's absurd. Um, but that's that mean. And, you know, we focus on the Gondor case, right? But, I mean, that's not even the most ridiculous thing that she does in this document. The the proposed remedy is also ridiculous. Quote, The court must immediately act to check the power of the legislative and executive branches by placing them into a state of stewardship to preserve the status quo ante. That's not even what it means, by the way. Uh, Right? She, she actually doesn't want to preserve the status quo, she? she's a radical change. You know? Pending a preliminary injunction, and then until a trial on the merits, plaintiffs hereby request that the Honorable Court enter the temporary restraining order attached hereto in the illegitimate 117th Congress and 46th President, collectively, the usurpers, From enacting any new legislation or making any substantial departures from United States policy, foreign and domestic, as it existed prior to their unlawful usurpation of power on January 3rd, 2021 and January 20th, 2021, respectively by appointing a group of trusted special masters to provide oversight to the usurpers, end quote. Wow, right? I mean, that is just, what, you're just, you're filing this in the Western District of Texas, and you're saying, we need to appoint a special master to run the United States government. You know, just, holy cow, right? I mean, the Gondor stuff is reasonable compared to her proposed remedy. So, and by the way, hopefully, you know, very, very helpfully, in a footnote, she also provides a link to the online Webster's Dictionary Definition of Usurper, in case the judge doesn't know what a usurper is, right? And she's obviously cut and pasted the link and the definition. Quote, One who seizes and holds office, power, position, etc., by force or without righ. R-I-G-H. Righ. She was so busy cutting and pasting into her document that she didn't actually proofread to see if she'd selected all the text that she wanted to copy into this document where she claims that, you know, the entire federal government is illegitimate. Alright. And, by the way, all of the documents in this case are riddled with these kind of errors. Um, You know, they're they're asking the court to overthrow the entire federal government, but they think that federal is spelled with two L's. So, I mean, obviously, it goes on. Um, You get the idea, right? This is a legal case that reads like it was authored by someone who's pro se, you know, arguing their own case, not by an actual attorney. Anyway, the suit was actually brought against Pete Sessions, representative uh, in Texas, Mitch McConnell, Nancy Pelosi, Mark Zuckerberg, Chuck Schumer, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Brad Raffensperger and all the members of the 117th Congress, et al. Now, I love how they just throw in Mark Zuckerberg for good measure. Like, if you know you're going to lose, you might as well throw in someone who can afford the best attorneys in the country, just for good measure, apparently. So, you know, can you guess what the outcome was? You know, that, okay, they asked for... A special master stewards to be appointed, and usurpers to be overthrown. If you guessed that the case was relegated to the trash heap, you are indeed factually correct. I will link to the magistrate judge's ruling in the show notes. Uh, it's going to be a PDF on Court Listener. It is, in many ways, more entertaining than the actual plaintiff's filings uh, themselves. I could read through all 16 pages here. I mean, it is... Is fun, um, and it's hard to really find a single passage that would sum it up. It's just all so great. I suppose that the, the quickest way to sum it up is is this passage: "quote The facts undergirding the lawsuit hardly bear repeating, due to the suit's fantastic and outright nonsensical nature." Input. So that's about as good as it gets, right? It's fantastic and nonsensical hats off to u s Magistrate Judge Jeffrey Mansky for writing one of the most entertaining judicial smackdowns of all time. The only thing that would have been better is if you know they had fined them all like ten million dollars anyway if you want to, you could also go on to Twitter uh Kelly Sorrell, with a an e inexplicably added to the end of the the, the name kelly s o r e L-L-E, Kelly Sorrell. She's on Twitter. Um, I won't waste your time with that here. Mental illness is a serious issue, um, but it's also sometimes hard to tell when someone has a delusional ideology and whether they are also suffering from a delusional disorder. This is a fine line and in, in the court system, this comes up more than, than you, you would reckon. So, I guess My own inclination is that I am naturally inclined to have sympathy for people who have suffered from a mental illness. But then I think about the kinds of things that she was saying publicly when she was running for the Texas State House, and any sympathy I may feel for her just disappears. So probably the best way to get a feel for who Kelly Sorrell is and what her positions on the issues are is to listen to the video that she uploaded to Facebook explaining who she is and what she stands for in her run for the Texas House of Representatives in
0: 2020. I do support the wall, but more importantly, I support holding Austin accountable. Our entitlements, well, okay, we'll start with congressional candidates. Whoever you guys elect for that or we vote for, As far as
1: right I absolutely uh, would love to see a full fan on abortion in Texas. Right, so there you go. Uh just full-on dog whistle, anchor baby, racist nonsense. Uh, you know, I mean that's where she stands, right? She's pro-baby until you know she decides that the baby's an anchor baby, in which case she's anti-baby. And she just makes things up, right? She's She's you know there are babies on life support who were you know what like they're that's just crazy these you know the attempted aborted fetuses that are on life support and she's you know going and rescuing them in the middle of the night waking up judges and getting okay all right I mean just making things up I mean it reminds me of how Republicans are pro election until they lose you know when they when they win right they're anti-election when they lose. I mean, I guess if we really wanted to return to Middle-earth, Kelly Sorrell would be an orc. She's not even like an Urukai. hai she's, she's just a regular orc, blindly following Sauron, blindly parroting his talking points, not big on book learning, and ultimately not even particularly interesting. Now, we don't yet have a statement of facts for Sorrell, Uh, In the indictment from the grand jury sworn in on January 8th, 2021, uh, it was filed on August 31st, Sorrell is charged with three felony counts. Conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, obstruction of an official proceeding, obstruction of justice, and the misdemeanor count of entering or remaining in a restricted building or grounds. So part of what's interesting is that She's charged with conspiracy by herself, even though, you know, uh, she's obviously affiliated with the Oath Keepers, which has plenty of conspiracy cases on its own. So that may suggest that other people are going to be added to the case. Now, that's intriguing, again, because she's connected to so many other people. Rhodes apparently believed that, that this, you know, this Roy Cohn idea that Trump has used successfully for his whole career. If you do your crimes in concert with a lawyer, everything is going to remain secret for forever. But you know it's already been established in court that there was obstruction of an official proceeding on January sixth, and so that was a crime, and so of course no privilege is going to apply. Now I'd hope that you know perhaps some element of the charges regarding withholding documents uh, might relate to the documents in Mar-a-Lago. But the indictment itself clearly refers to her urging Oath Keepers to destroy evidence related to January 6th. So, unfortunately, I can't wish cast that out into the universe. You know, the obstruction of justice charges relates rather narrowly to the Oath Keepers case. Although it would be interesting if it, you know, did relate to the cases of, you know, co-defendants who may be brought in. Although, again, it doesn't appear that's the case, right? She, she urged him, like, you know, get rid of their phones, delete the messages, all that stuff. You know, the kinds of things that, that you do when you're a, a criminal defense attorney. So, Sorrell is intimately bound up with the events of January 6th. But she's not like, you know, a lot of the other lawyers in the Trump circle we've seen, right? She's a fabulous, she's prone to flights of fancy and grand, grandiosity. Um... And unlike Michael Green, right, she's not been added to the main Oathkeeper's seditious conspiracy case. And of course, she won't be, right? Uh, the first tranche of Oathkeeper's defendants, including Stuart Rhodes, is set to go on trial on September 26th. And adding her at the end at this point would just delay that case. And Judge made is plain, he's made it plain he definitely wants to move on. So for me, this is as close as we've gotten to a cooperating defendant who is, you know, connected to the hub of the hub in spook conspiracy at the heart of January 6th. Now, we have this indictment, but we don't have a statement of fact. We have committee testimony in which this defendant is fingering Alex Jones, Allie Alexander, and Roger Stone. Um, And, you know, she's probably given up much more testimony. But they're reserving that, right, in, in order to preserve it for you know, the cases against, hopefully, her uninvited co-conspirators. Now, I think this, you know, this goes right up the food chain. Uh, you know, if I was Bianca Gracia, I'd probably be following the advice of Eric Hirschman.
0: Get a great effing criminal
1: defense lawyer. Never going to get tired of that clip, right? So, you know, um, I, I think that Latinos for Trump and Bianca Gracia, at least at a minimum, uh, you know, given the legal work that Sorel did in the service of their crazy uh, campaign to overthrow the entire government. Um, that looks like, you know, a thing that could easily happen. So, as I mentioned before, we are still awaiting news of the date for the next hearing of the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack. But in the meantime, of course, we have had the continually developing story of Mar-a-Lago documents Uh, and the the theft of these documents by Donald Trump. You know, the alleged theft, whatever. So we've had news, for example, that 43 of the folders that were supposed to contain classified documents are empty. But no news on what the contents of those documents might have been or where they might be. Now, whatever Trump's motivations were in stealing these documents, whether for blackmail material, profit, to serve the interest of a foreign power, or just because he wanted to show them off to Kid Rock and Kyle Rittenhouse, there's there's no good explanation for why these folders would be empty. And, of course, it's been established that the contents of these folders would be known, that would be clearly marked on the folders themselves. So, people keep asking, if they're searching Mar-a-Lago, why not search other Trump properties? Why not Bedminster? Why not Trump Tower? Well, if they needed any further reason to look, these empty folders, right, would seem to provide a good reason for the government to look at other Trump properties. In unrelated news, Homeland Security agents have searched the properties on Park Avenue and Southampton of one Victor Vexelsberg, a Russian oligarch, who had his yacht seized last April. Agents reportedly removed a large safe and other items. Vexelberg is reportedly linked, of course, to Vladimir Putin and made news for meeting with Michael Cohen in 2016, although the news story, I don't think, broke until 2018, and reportedly giving Cohen half a million dollars. Vexelberg also attended Donald Trump's inauguration in 2017, but beyond that, I don't know what, if any, relationship May exist between Trump and Vexelberg. There's any number of possibilities. Um it, Vexelberg was part of the Manafort story. Uh, you know, Manafort, well tangentially, right? So Manafort was convicted convicted for acting as a straw man and funneling contributions to the Trump inauguration from foreign donors. Um, no, actually, I'm sorry, he was he wasn't convicted of that yet, but he was Uh, no, sorry, I'm getting confused with the banning case. He was! Um, In any event, Vexelberg has been a client of Manafort. So you have someone, you know, who's involved with shenanigans, involving being an unregistered agent, and also funneling uh, contributions uh, illegally to Trump's inaugural uh, who used to uh, work for Vexelberg, and you also have Vexelberg at the inauguration. So, you know, Kind of interesting. And, you know, it raises the question, of course, of whether or not the government is targeting people in Trump's circle who were covered by Trump pardons. In more unrelated news, Steve Bannon has been arrested, this time by New York state authorities. He's being charged with money laundering and fraud resulting from his Rebuild the Wall campaign, a campaign that wound up using the money for a whole bunch of things that didn't relate to Building a wall. This, of course, was the same instant offense for which Bannon had been federally charged in 2020, but for which Bannon received a pardon for Trump before it could go to trial. Now, the press is overlooking the connection here, but listeners to the show will also remember that Dustin Stockton, a potential star witness in the committee hearings, who I really hope we're going to hear more from soon, was also involved in the We Build a Wall campaign and was. Very upset that he wasn't issued a pardon along with Manafort, and of course I haven't mentioned the ruling by Judge Eileen Cannon, a Trump-appointed judge in Florida, who effectively blocked the Department of Justice from investigating the stolen documents, basically making the same kind of uh, ruling that you know John Eastman would like, right? You know, saying well the documents contain executive privilege material or attorney-client client privilege material, or just every kind of privilege material. And so, you know, therefore, everything's got to be shut down. you got to set up a special master. Uh, and almost immediately, a whole bunch of folks came out and said, that, that's probably fine. The Department of Justice should probably just go along with the special master process uh, set up by a judge, of course, who, again, was appointed by Trump and uh, is someone who Trump has, you know, specifically judge shopped to get this case in front of her. And also uh, a case against, you know, a whole bunch of other people, right? This is his go-to judge. You know, that case was also, by the way, dismissed this week in other unrelated news. Um, so, you know, I think this is a... a well, actually, I was it that. She He wanted to get that case in front of her. It didn't actually go in front of her. If, if it had, it probably would have been a, a very different outcome. But again, this is this is Trump's personal go-to judge. And, uh, you know, it shouldn't be surprising that the Department of Justice is appealing the ruling and I think this appeal is going to be successful even though it's going to be heard by the 11th Circuit of the U.S. Court of Appeals, a court that has six Trump appointees and whose circuit justice is Clarence Thomas. Uh, Nonetheless, the, the Cannon case and the Cannon ruling you know, I believe it's mainly a delaying tactic by the Trump legal team. Um, I don't think it's going to work for very long. In addition to the appeal, uh, the Department of Justice has also filed a 21-page motion for a stay that is, you know, basically uh, kind of a last chance, an off-ramp for a Judge Cannon to avoid being overturned on appeal. I'll link to the PDF Uh, for the government's motion in the show notes, but let me just quote it here briefly. Quote, Plaintiff does not and could not assert that he owns or has any possessory interest in classified records, that he has any right to have those government records returned to him, or that he can advance any plausible claims of attorney-client privilege as to such records that would bar the government from reviewing or using them. And although this court suggested that plaintiff might be able to assert executive privilege as to some of the seized records, the Supreme Court precedent makes clear that any possible assertion of privilege that plaintiffs might attempt to make over the classified records would be overcome by the government's, quote, demonstrated specific need for that evidence. They cite U.S. v. Nixon, 1974. Among other things, the classified records are the very subject of the government's ongoing investigation." End quote, right? So, you know, there's classified documents, there's uh, attorney-client privilege stuff, there's um, executive privilege stuff, but they never overlap, right? They can't possibly overlap. You know, the classified documents are not discussions with your attorneys. They are not discussions with your advisors. And so that part needs to go on, according to the government. And we'll see, right? The judge has asked Trump's team to respond to this motion by Monday, September 12th. Alright, so let's move on to the final segment uh, where I'm going to discuss what I found when I looked at which institutions January 6th inmates were sent to after sentencing. In order to do this, I used the handy-dandy Bureau of Prisons Inmate Locator tool, which is completely free and easy to use. I will include a link to that in the show notes. So, my population of interest is the universe of currently incarcerated January 6th inmates. In order to determine who those were, I had to look at all post-sentencing inmates. Now, there's a lot of variation in the data. Different inmates have different report dates when they have to turn themselves in uh, to go into their institution, right? But once an inmate has undergone the intake process of the facility, that they're supposed to show up at, they sh- do show up in the BOP inmate locator. Now, as far as I can tell, it's very reliable for currently incarcerated inmates and it will also give you the institution to which the inmate has been designated as well as their release date. I'll discuss the designations process in a minute. So, it's all publicly available, and I think a handy tool for open source SUSE that. Sluice that maybe some people are overlooking uh, or anyone interested in the federal criminal justice system, uh, the BOP inmate locator, just google it, it's the first result. Now I first became interested in this question because I've been thinking about the appropriate custody level for some of these inmates. What about all the current and former police officers who have been convicted of assaulting a federal officer and are gonna get long sentences or have received long sentences. They're a special problem, right? Because they're likely to be rather unpopular with both staff and inmates, at wherever they so, I mean, send Bureau of Prisons employees, of course, are federal law enforcement, and every staff member is also a correctional officer with full rest powers and all that. So, you know, it doesn't mean they're all working a post every day, um, but I don't think they would be sympathetic Cops who attack other cops, right? And, of course, inmates, historically, have had problems with uh, police officers who wind up becoming inmates. But, in general, I see all of these AFO defendants, all of these people convicted of assaulting federal officers, as a special problem. They have been convicted of attacking police as a part of a mob, in broad daylight, with cameras everywhere. So, in other words... Correctional officers are police, you've got people who have convictions for assaulting police, and we're going to send them to prisons where you find police, federal police, right? Now, that's what correctional officers are. So, I think that they are a special danger to community, but more than that, once they're inside the prison system, they're a danger to staff. If you're willing to attack police at the Capitol, in broad daylight, with cameras everywhere, you might be a danger to staff once you're inside. So these defendants pose a very, very serious threat to the physical security of the institutions where they're housed. And they also may be very difficult to manage correctionally. We have seen that in the January 6th wing of the DC jail. These are people who feel that they can act with impunity. They accept the responsibility for absolutely nothing and they have a demonstrated willingness to assault federal law enforcement. Now, I'm just political scientist, right? I don't understand fully how the Bureau of Prisms does designations, but I have read the rules and criteria, uh, which I will also post in the show notes. So designations, according to the uh, Bureau of Prisms uh, memorandum, actually it's non-memorandum, it's a 109 page, uh, basically, Regs, right, regulations, rules. Um, I think it was signed off by former uh, head of the BOP, Kathleen Hawk Sawyer. Um, I, I think she's gone. They're looking for a new head at the current times from twenty nineteen in response to the first step act. Anyway, designations are all done out of the Designation and Sentence Computation Center in Grand Prairie, Texas. So this is the bureau's summation of factors that go into the designations process. Now, I'm sure they have other considerations that are listed here, Um, you know, it's the government, but this is actually, these are just the ones actually from the website, not the the document itself. Document itself, there's many more, which again, there's a link to it in the show notes. If you're really interested in reading federal regulations governing the designations process in federal prisons, that's, you're a special kind of nerd if that's you. All right, here are the considerations. One, the level of security and staff supervision the inmate requires. Two, the level of security and staff supervision the institution provides. Three, the medical classification care level of the inmate and the care level of the institution. Four, the inmate's program needs, e.g. substance abuse treatment, educational, vocational training, individual and or group counseling, medical or mental health treatment, and various administrative factors, e.g. institution bed state, bed space capacity, the inmates' release residence, judicial recommendations, separation needs, and security measures needed to ensure protection of victims, witnesses, and the general public. End quote. So if you're really nerdy, again, you can check out the latest revisions to the classification designations process under the First Step Act, uh, which again, that's the 2019 document and it's linked in a PDF in the show notes, 110 pages. I don't wanna to get too far in the weeds here, right? But those are, those are the things. So, you know, how, how secure does the inmate need to be housed basically? What's the security level? What do you do, need to do to make sure the general public and victims are safe and what, are the needs of the inmate upon release? What are the needs of, you know, let's say visitation, right? You know, those are the the considerations that go into designations. Now, we see that this is a thorny problem, right? For some of the January 6th inmates in pretrial detention. How do you manage these people? Ryan Samsel, for example, has been a persistent problem inmate and so he's currently housed at FDC Philadelphia, which is an administrative-level facility. Now, of course, you'll probably remember Samson from a very early episode on The Proud Boys, Season 1, Episode 3, Monkey See, Monkey 2. Samsell was a so-called normie who was allegedly goaded by Joe Biggs into being the very first member of the Trumpist mob to assault police at Peace Circle. Now, you may also be aware that since that time, Samsel has been a very difficult inmate to manage. He has medical issues, but has allegedly been uncooperative with medical staff. And uh, he's been heard making threats against federal officials during his phone calls. And he's also claimed that staff have beaten him up. So, you know, that's his story, right? Staff are beating me up. I'm being persecuted, uh, but of course, you know, again, not necessarily a reliable narrator. Uh, my guess is that if an inmate is assaultive or non-compliant, they won't cuff up uh, or they engage in other kinds of shenanigans. You know, officers are trained to use a l- appropriate level of force, and I think that that's probably what happened here, Right. And the, the level of force you might need to use on Brian Sam, uh, Ryan Samsel, um, you know, he's a violent man who attacks police. He has a history of domestic violence against a pregnant partner. You know, that level of violence that you're going to need to subdue someone like that is probably a little bit higher than it would be for an average inmate. This guy, you know, he makes fight videos and posts them on YouTube, right? I mean, this is someone who's, you know... It doesn't take Biggs very much to goad him into attacking armed police, right? This is, he's, a, he's got a short fuse. So how do you manage someone like him? Now, not every January 6th inmate is going to be Ryan Samsel, but I think that the group of inmates as a whole poses a number of challenging management problems for correctional staff. And so one of the things I was most curious about is whether or not they were going to be sending these inmates to penitentiaries. Which are high security prisons. Now, before I explain that, I should probably just you know get into what does that mean, right? Send them to a pen, right? Again, my thought was, okay, once they sentence these guys, they're going to send them to the federal pen. So there are different types of institutions in the federal system. Uh, there are minimum security institutions, low security institutions, medium security institutions. High Security Institutions and Administrative Level Institutions. So, what does all that mean? Minimum Security Institutions, basically, those are camps, right? And the level of security there is, is such that inmates can actually walk away from them. Um, you know, and this, mm, you know, again, this is something that, I mean, is, is probably not suitable for, for the, these categories of inmates. I mean, it's basically the honor system, right? Um, but other than that, you know, even even low security institutions are very secure. So minimum institu- security institutions, not all that secure. Low security institutions, it, you're going to have a fence, right? So the Bureau of Prisons has gotten very good at making their facilities escape resistant. So, you know, you've got these different levels Ranging for minimum, which is basically no security. I don't want to say that. They are staffed, right? Too low, where you're going to have a fence. uh, Too high, where you've got multiple layers of fencing. You've got razor wire. You've got continuous patrols on the perimeter. You've got guard towers. Um, You've got a sally port. You've got all these physical things in place to make sure that, you know, nobody's walking out, right? I mean, if you want to get in, you're gonna have to get a helicopter or something. And even then, you got a guard in a tower with a rifle who uh, has the orders to shoot to kill, right? They don't shoot to wound, they shoot to kill. Unless they're doing some kind of like, you know, something's going on in the yard and they need to fire some warning shots, maybe. But even then, you know, anyway. So their administrative level facilities that are designed to house inmates at any custody level. And these are typically associated with some other mission, right? Um, I mean, so for example, there are the, the urban ones, uh, you know, places like in Philadelphia, New York, Chicago, uh, that, you know, are, they're used a lot for like pretrial detention purposes. But again, given the risk factors, my assumption going into this, and the question I was curious in, about, was how are they going to manage them correctionally, what kind of institutions are they going to send them to, what kind of institutions uh, are going to best provide for the security of the general population and of staff. So, you know, I mean, again, I'm not saying they will all have to go to a pen, but a relatively high-level institution, a medium or uh, a penitentiary, a high-security facility. Penitentiaries, in particular, are set up to deal with the most violent, disruptive inmates uh, the ones who might pose a danger to staff, other inmates, and the security of the institution. And as a consequence, they have a different culture. Pen wardens, pen captains, pen officers, they're, they're built different, right? Um, so these are the places that are as close to a 1950s prison movie that they have in the federal system. These are the tough places for the tough cases. And so, you know, are they sending these guys to those? Hmm. Well, Uh, talk about that in a minute. In addition, of course, there are correctional complexes, which have different institutions all operating together in a close proximity to one another. These institutions may have different custody levels and, of course, different missions. And, you know, I'll give you an example. I mean, many complexes will also have uh, minimum security facilities, i.e. camps associated with them, um, because the, the camps are an important part of the prison labor pool for running the complex. Uh, some of them have a medical center um, or they have different programming available at different institutions within the complex. Now, there are a number of reasons why the Bureau of Prisons operates complexes. They have to do with staffing, budget, and administration, um, but there are a number of them within the, the federal system. Um, by the way, the opposite of a complex, of course, is a standalone institution, right? Basically, one prison with one level of security. Um, so, you know, you find those at every security level. Um, there are pins that are just basically out in the country somewhere in the middle of nowhere. So, in addition, you know, to get breaking through the razor wire, you also got to deal with the fact that you're in rural West Virginia and there's literally nothing for 50 miles, Um So, anyway, we tend to think of the federal prison system as monolithic, but the truth is that there are 122 different institutions spread around the country. They have different missions, they have different programming capabilities, and they are all intended to securely house a wide variety of inmates to keep them occupied and, theoretically, rehabilitate them, even though, you know, perhaps the mass incarceration system has gotten away from rehabilitating people nonetheless you know as I mentioned like right, there's things like group treatment for mentally uh, mentally ill people there's substance abuse programs at many prisons across the country because of course with the war on drugs there are many uh, people who have substance abuse issues that's where we ultimately handle uh, people with substance abuse problems if it gets bad enough in our society um, and you know of course people who are chronically mentally ill right so all kinds of programming things you know um. Educational opportunities, right? Many people who haven't finished high school, that sort of thing. By the way, it's a side point, but I think the Bureau might want to try to develop some kind of de-radicalization programming to deprogram these MAGA inmates. Uh, Although, you know, now that I think about it, perhaps they would just turn that into another G6 pod. So, enough preamble. Um, All this is to say that I would have thought that for a variety of reasons, these inmates would be assigned to fairly high security institutions, let's say a a medium or a high. What I found when I looked at the inmates who've actually been sentenced using the BOP's handy-dandy inmate locator is exactly the opposite. Now, some of this may have to do with changes in the First Step Act, which is really the first large-scale reform of the federal prison system in a generation. So, for example, one change that was implemented in the First Step Act um, is that uh, there's a real loosening of what are called public safety factors, or PSFs. Um, and so, for example, like, if you look at um, charges regarding threatening federal officials, right? Specifically, one of the things that the First Step Act did was that statutorily, or, or you know, or before they were required? If you if you threatened a federal official, you had to be held at a, a high security facility. Today, thanks to the First Step Act, um, the latest version of the Inmate Security Designation and Classification Program statement from 2019—that's the document I'm, I'm referencing, including in the show notes. That's no longer the case. Quote: A male or female inmate classified at with a central inmate monitoring assessment of a threat to a government official will be housed in at least a low security level institution, unless that PSF, public safety factor, has been waived." End quote. So again, used to be, if you threatened a government official, you went to a pen. Now, eh, they'll send you a look. That's a huge difference, right? So, you know, that's that's consequential. And by the way, of course, there's a horrific irony here. Uh, Yes, the First Step Act itself is really Jared Kushner's project, right? Jared Kushner really thought that the federal prison system was too harsh on his daddy. And so it's ironic, right? These so-called tough on crime people in the tough administration put in this hug-a-thug program in the First Step Act, you know, and golly gee, right, you know, threatening federal officials? Who does that? Trumpists! And so, of course, you know, so we've got people who are threatening the lives of federal officials. It's usually people on the far right. And they get to go to low-security facilities thanks to a law that was enacted by, you know, Donald Trump due to the work of his Minister Without Portfolio uh, son-in-law, Jared Kushner. So, you know, they're going to be actual members of the Trumpist movement getting real benefit from legislation that was passed under the Trump administration. <laughs> so, Yeah, anyway, the universe of cases. So well, I looked at 249 January 6th inmates who had been sentenced, and I was only looking at the ones who are currently incarcerated post-sentencing. So the pretrial detention cases are out, um, as are the ones where the sentence was a fine, home confinement, Intermittent confinement, or probation, uh, or inmates who have yet to report, or inmates who have already served their time. So this is this is a kind of a a, um, a blink of an eye, right? This is a snapshot. In fact, this is a snapshot depiction of where all of the inmates who are incarcerated are in the federal prison system. So I went through. I put in all the names of every individual inmate. And the ones I gotta hit on are ones who are currently incarcerated. Unless there are problems with the data that I actually don't think there are. Except for one exception, I'll get to. So how many does that leave? Well, what I looked at there found that there were 26 inmates that were serving time for January 6th offenders. Now, I say that, but really there are only 25, and one of them actually gets released today. Right? And I'll talk about her in a moment. Um, So the first is Richard Ricky Thomas Wilden, age 30, of California. Uh, This is an AFO inmate, uh, proud boy, hashtag green can man. His release date is November 15th, 2028. And he is currently incarcerated at SCI Sandstone. A low security institution in Sandstone, Minnesota. James Malt, 30, of New York, another AFO defendant, inmate, convicted, hashtag ironworker guy, release date November 21st, 2024. Malt is located at the Federal Correctional Complex Allenwood, uh, particularly the, the low. The, the one, right, in Allenwood, Pennsylvania. Third, Cody Matisse, 29, of New York, another assault on a federal officer inmate. Hashtag fence snatcher. His release date is November 20th, 2024. Matisse is located at the FCI Milan Low in Milan, Michigan. Fourth, Terry Lynn Lindsey. This is man, by the way. Um, somehow has like three gender ambiguous names, but Terry Lynn Lindsey, fifty-five of Ohio, disorderly conduct. #Hashtag Terry Lindsey. His release date is December twelfth, twenty twenty-two. Also being housed at the Low in Milan, Michigan. Davis Allen Blair, twenty-eight of Maryland. Uh, He was convicted of obstruction of law enforcement during a civil disorder. David, hashtag David Allen Blair. His release date is January 13th, 2023 and is currently incarcerated at the FCI Loretto Low in Loretto, Pennsylvania. Sixth, Dennis Sidorsky, 48, of Virginia. Convicted of disorderly conduct in a restricted building. Hashtag Dennis Sidorsky. His release date is December 21st, 2022, also being housed at FCI Loretto Low in Loretto, Pennsylvania. Seventh, Philip Bromley, 48, of Alabama, also convicted of disorderly conduct in the Capitol building. Hashtag Philip Bromley. Release date, November 16th, 2022, housed at USP Atlanta. Now, this is interesting. I know I've talked about USP Atlanta before. They announced they're shutting it down, but apparently not shut down yet. Um, and it's hard. It's like, you know, why would they why would they shut down again? It's been very hush-hush. Uh, there's been a, a couple of news stories about it. Uh, but, you know, they were apparently having some problems with some staff, and they had to let some people go, but it is also still apparently in operation. Um, now, even though it's a USP, uh, it's in a metro area, and so... It would seem to be a logical place, right? This guy's from Alabama, Georgia, fine, you know. They could sit in there. I mean, use use these prisons for, for transit purposes. So even though he, he's at a pen, uh, it's for a very, you know, relatively short period of time. Eight, Derek Evans, 37, of West Virginia. Convicted of obstruction of law enforcement civil dis- during civil disorder. Hashtag Derek Evans. Release date... October 23rd, 2022, and he is at FCI Milan in Milan, Michigan. Nine, Thomas Baranyi, 30, of New Jersey, convicted of restricted building or grounds, hashtag Thomas Baranyi, Rudy State, October 24th, 2022, and he is at FCI Danbury in Danbury, Connecticut, also a low security facility. Number 10, Dr. Simone Gold, 56 of California, convicted of restricted building or grounds. Hashtag Simone Gold. Of course you'll you know you'll recognize this person, right? One of the founders of America Frontline Doctors. Uh, one of the you know COVID nuts who took part in the attack on the Capitol. Release date, September eleventh, 2022. Now I actually saw, I think it was on her feed on Twitter um that's been moved up to today. So apparently, you know, they're not gonna release her on Sunday, they're gonna release her on Friday. So um you know, watch out world Simone Gold is is loose and you know doing shenanigans out in the world again. Um anyway whether she's in or out was she was housed at FDC Miami which again is an administrative level facility. Uh, you have these uh, metro detention centers that are, you know, oftentimes pre-trial, sometimes short sentences. Um, it's odd. Simone Gold is allegedly from California. I haven't read the court documents, maybe she just wanted to go to Florida to be released so that she could be with, with Trump. Who knows? But, again, similar kind of a situation with Atlanta. Uh, sometimes these, you know, oftentimes these uh, institutions in large metropolitan areas are used for short sentences. 11. Nolan Cook, 24, of Texas. Convicted of obstructing law enforcement during a civil disorder. Hashtag Nolan Cook. His release date is June 16th, 2023. And he is located at SCI Segoville, which is a low near Dallas. 12. Greg Rubenacher, 26, of New York. Convicted of assault on a federal officer, and nine total counts. Uh, Hashtag Greg Rubenacher. His release date is May 28th, 2025, and he is housed at SCI Allenwood, again another low, in Allenwood, Pennsylvania. Thirteen, Matthew Ryan Miller, 23, of Maryland. uh, Convicted of assault on a federal officer, and 1512, the obstruction of the, an official proceeding count. Uh, hashtag Baby Macho Man, uh, another proud boy. His release date is June 4th, 2023, and he is located at SEI Cumberland in Cumberland, Maryland, which is a medium uh, that also has a camp associated with it. I'm, I'm sure he's not at the camp. Uh, he's a new inmate. Um, yeah. 14, Hunter M. Key, 22 of California, and he's uh, charged with or well, convicted of destruction of government property, hashtag under His release date is October 12, 2022. And he is located at uh, Federal Detention Center, FTC CTAC, which is, of course, Washington State near Seattle Airport, right? Hence the name C-TAC. Um And that's an administrative level facility. So, again, you know, you've got people relatively short sentences and they're doing their time. Uh, at an administrative level facility uh, in a large metro area. So that's the thing that happens. Fifteen, Aaron Mostofsky, 36, of New York, convicted of obstruction of law enforcement during civil disorder, um, hashtag furry fox guy. Uh, His release date is February 5th, 2023, and he is located at SCI Danbury in Danbury, Connecticut. Kevin Creek, 47, of Georgia, another uh, assault on a federal officer inmate, Hashtag Mad Mongrel. His release date is May 16th, 2024, and he is housed at FCI Jessup in Georgia. Um, so it has, FCI Jessup has a medium and a low there. Um, I, I, you know, would have to go to read the court documents, see what his numbers are, um, but he could be at either one. It uh, could be the medium or low. I mean, if we're looking at, you know, AFO defendants. They appear to be the ones who are most likely to be at a medium, which is what I was hoping for, Uh, but only a handful of them are, and uh, Creek might be one of them. 17. Lonnie Leroy Kaufman, 72, of Alabama, uh, convicted of having an unregistered firearm, uh, carrying uh, a pistol, both felonies, Lonnie Kaufman hashtag. His release date is April fourteenth, 2024, and he is also held at FCI Jessup in Georgia. 18, Duke Edward Wilson, 68, of Idaho, convicted of assault on a federal officer and a 1512 count of obstruction of a, an official proceeding, um, hashtag fake news hat. His release date is December 7th, 2025, and he is being held at FCI Yazoo City, which is a low security institution in Yazoo City, Mississippi. So this is a weird one. Idaho, it's from Idaho, being housed in Mississippi. That's odd. 19, Mark, Lef- Mark Leffingwell, 53, of Washington State. Convicted of AFO, hashtag Mark Leffingwell. Release date September 16th, 2022. Also, he's being held at FTC tag Again, administrative level facility in Washington State. 20. Nicholas Lagrand, uh, 27 of South Carolina, convicted of AFO, hashtag Tossy McTosser, release date 5 30 24, so May, uh, sorry, May 30th, 2024, and being held at SCI Cumberland. Um, this time I, I know he's at he's at Cumberland. He's at the low in Cumberland. 21, Devlin Thompson, 29, of Washington State, also convicted of AFO, assault on a federal officer. Hashtag Seattle UW guy. Release date, 11-10-2024. Uh, he's being housed at Yazoo City, Mississippi. 22, Robert Scott Palmer, 55, of Florida, another AFO defendant. Hashtag Florida flag jacket. Release date, March 23rd. 2026, he is being held at FCI Coleman, a low in Florida. 23, Cleveland Meredith, 54, of Colorado, was convicted of interstate threats, hashtag Cleveland Meredith, release date January 2nd, 2023, being housed at FCI Yazoo City, low security institution in Yazoo City, Mississippi. 24, you'll remember this guy, Jacob Anthony Chansley, 35, of Arizona. He was convicted of the 1512 obstruction count, right? Obstruction of an official proceeding. Hashtag Jacob Chansley, of course, better known as the QAnon Shaman. Release date, December 6, 2023. So Christmas, you know, a little, well, anyway, December of next year. uh, Being held at FCI Safford which is a low in Arizona. 25, Scott Fairlam, 45, of New Jersey. You'll remember him as the first person to plead to assault on a federal officer. Um, uh, and also, uh, 1512, obstruction of official proceeding. Hashtag Scott Fairlam. Release date, November 20th, 2023, being housed at SCI Butner, uh, the medium. So those are the 25, again, out of the universe of nearly 250 defendants who have been sentenced, only 25 of them are serving their sentences. And why is that? Well, some of them have yet to report. Um, but most of them had a short sentence, right? If I hadn't looked when I had looked, if I'd done this next week, I would Simone Gold wouldn't be in the data set. Uh, because she would have been released. So only 25. One-tenth, right, of the people who've been sentenced are currently incarcerated. Also, I'd like to give an honorable mention, and the only one where I think there's a possible data problem, which is Troy Smocks. You'll remember Troy Smocks, uh, who was convicted of interstate communication of threats on September 29th. Um, but he was given, uh, 2021 rather, he was given credit for time served, and at that point he had been incarcerated for nine months. So I assume Troy Smox is free currently, um, but the reason why I can't say definitively is because he apparently was never assigned a new reference number. So if you look in the, the inmate uh, locator and you look for Troy Smocks, uh you'll find that the only thing in the system refers to an earlier offense, an offense for which he was released on January 17th, 2014. So I assume Mr. Smox is out now, which honestly, you know, he has a fairly long criminal history. Um, But, you know, it's one of those where he wasn't even there. I mean, he wound up doing a lot more time uh, at, you know, and he wasn't even in D.C. on January 6th. So, you know, of course, it's one of the handful of black defendants, right? Who You know, not even there Um, And yet he's getting more time than, uh, dare I say it, uh, certain AFO defendants who wind up getting like six months. So I don't know what's going on with Mr. Smocks. All right. So what I'd like to do now is to to just kind of go on to, you know, what we make of the data, right? Nine things that I learned by looking for all of the inmates and figuring out where they're housed. So first thing, Obviously, it's surprising that there's only 25 people here, right? But I think I've explained that relatively short sentences. And really, the vast majority of the people at any point in time, uh, the vast majority of the convicted January 6th inmates who are going to be in prison at any point in time are the ones who are serving long sentences. So these are going to be the obstruction people uh, and the, uh, the AFO people, right? So those are the defendants who are typically, if you look at, in a snapshot, who are going to be incarcerated at any given point in time. So, still, surprising, right? Of the people who have been sentenced, only 25 are in prison. Second, um, six of these inmates were assigned to a prison in the state in which they reside, which is consistent with uh, the policy. So inmates are supposed to be assigned to institutions that are within 500 miles of their home, their residence, uh, or where visitors who may be visiting them uh, have to travel, or uh where they are going to be released to at the end of their sentence. So that is good from the standpoint of the government. Congress says they have to be, uh, basic, you know, they have to be close to or at the, at the facility. That will serve their needs and is closest closest to their state residence or the state into which they are being released. But still, that's a fair. I mean, given the number of facilities, 122 facilities, you would think that that they could have that be higher, right? Um. So that I mean, you know, on on the one hand, yeah, it's apparent when you, especially when you look at the ones who are in neighboring states or you know, at least the same region, uh, almost all of them are. Um, but some of them aren't. Third thing I found, four of these inmates were assigned to prisons more than 500 miles away from their state of, of residence or, you know, presumably the state to which they will be released. You know, that's odd, right? One of them was Simone Gold. I have no idea what her future plans are. Um, But, you know, uh, I mean, then you have, like, uh, who was it, from Idaho, who's, you know, getting, being held in Yazoo City in Mississippi. Um, you know, that's, oh yeah, Duke Wilson. I'll okay, get forgive about him. He's one of the longest sentences, right? So, bit odd. I don't know why he's being held in Yazoo City when he's a resident of Idaho. Fourth thing. Um, so, most of, the, most of the inmates are being held in, if no, they're not in the same state, they are in neighboring states. So, that's good. Right? Again, that is the goal. Uh, they want to be able to have into inmates integrate easily into the community upon release, and that applies to all inmates, not just January 6th inmates. Fifth thing that I learned, um, which goes directly to the, uh, the, the question that was driving this research, uh, is that they have really a low custody level overall so far. And if you look at the numbers, yeah, it makes sense, right? So, I mean, it, it's related to the scores, sentencing, uh, and designations. So, you know, most of them are at what they, was, they would call a one uh, or a low security facility. But again, that's not a minimum. Don't confuse a low with a camp, right? A camp, a lot of those guys are, are like people who've been in a long time, they've had uh, no shots or incident reports. They are relatively trustworthy inmates um, who are, you know, close to, oftentimes, close to the end of their sentences and have every incentive not to stray from uh, the the facility, right? You know, if you've done 20 years and you've got like six months to go, um, you know, why would you want an escape conviction, right? So, you know, don't confuse a camp with a low. Uh, A low is, is going to be more secure, a low, there's, you know, you're not going to be able to walk away from it. Um, and again, even the, the federal escape rate is very, very, very low in the modern era. And that includes low security facilities, which, you know, again, is, is uh, perhaps a bit of a, a misleading label. If you go and you visit your local low security federal facility, you will find it looks pretty secure. Uh, It doesn't look like a place that you're going to be able to get out of very easily. Um, My concern, of course, is the safety of staff. And, I mean, to my mind, you know, um, it it is a question of whether or not, you know, these inmates are going to be a problem in terms of assaulting staff. Um, I think, you know, that's why, you know, I think, well, like a medium might be a, a little bit better. But we'll see. You know, we'll see what kind of record, how many shots these guys get written up for, uh, you know, and what happens with them. But I just don't think that, like, you know, these are people who can be trusted to behave very well when most of them have accepted very little responsibility for their actions. Sixth thing that I found, uh, you know, not surprising, um, but interesting, is that they are being spread out across the country. These inmates, you know, and it's a natural consequence, I would suppose, of trying to keep them within 500 miles of where they're going to be released into the community, that, and, you know, given that they are from, you know, well, not this particular set of inmates, right, but the universe of January 6th defendants are from all across the country, and so, therefore, they are going to prisons that are all across the country. None of the prisons that I looked at have more than three inmates in them. So that's good. And one of the reasons why that's good, of course, is you remember all the problems that they're having right now in the so-called treason wing, the sedition wing of the DC jail, right? They've, They've housed these guys together. They did that for the security of the inmates themselves so they wouldn't be assaulted. Um, but they're developing their own little America first cult in there. Um, and I, I, you know, I don't think it's great to house these gang, these guys together so that they form into a gang, uh, which is, you know, they were already a gang. Many of them, you know, already people who have gang proclivities. they're proud boys or Oath Keepers, you know, um, actually, well, there were no Oath Keepers in, in this set, nonetheless. Um, you know that's a concern. And so they are spreading them out. And so you're not you're not going to find them forming a new white supremacist gang. They might join an existing white supremacist gang, but they're not going to uh, form a new January 6th gang of January 6th defendants, because many of them are singletons, right? Many of the institutions, there's only one inmate from January 6th who are there. So, I think that's interesting. The BOP is avoiding the mistake that I believe was made in DC to house these inmates together. No, they are spreading them across 122 inmates in uh, 122 institutions in the system. Um, all right, seven, seven thing, and this is more of a supposition, but I think that there are some of these institutions that are more likely than others to get many more January 6th inmates. Um, Looking at where the inmates are situated, uh, you know, in terms of like where they're from, there's disproportionately many inmates or potential inmates, right, who get sentenced from places like Pennsylvania and Florida. Um, Currently, like, FCI Coleman has one, right? Uh, So I think actually a place like Coleman will probably wind up getting a lot more January six people once all the Florida gang members wind up getting convicted. Uh, also, um, just based on all the Pennsylvania inmates, right? So Cumberland, Loretto, Allenwood, who already have inmates, Allenwood has two. Um, Cumberland has two. Uh, Loretto, also in Pennsylvania, has two. I think... Again, given all the defendants that we have from Pennsylvania, those institutions are probably going to see more January six inmates going to them. I could be wrong. Uh, they could, they could, sit, they could be well aware of the problem, and they're like, no, we're not going to have more than two or three inmates from January six in a given institution. I think that would be very smart. So you know, it shows I think that there's more thought going into the designations process than had been going into the process for these pre-trial inmates who have been such a management problem for the warden and staff at the D.C. jail. Eighth thing. Precisely, again, because of the shortness of sentences for parading defendants, uh, the vast majority of currently incarcerated defendants are going to be for serious offenses, right? So, it makes sense. So, you know, just over time, Disproportionately, just the way it works when you have people getting 15 days or 30 days or sentenced to intermittent confinement on the weekends, um, at any given point in time, most of the people who are in federal custody or in federal prison post sentencing are going to be the more serious defendants. Which is good if you are, you know, you're one of the people who are interested in following these uh, people. Uh, again, you can use the inmate locator and figure out where they are, uh, you know, as they move through their uh, sentence. Now, over time, designations can change, right? And so, you know, some of these inmates, uh, if they don't misbehave, might wind up at a camp at some point. Some of them, however, you know, uh, Ryan Samsel, just guessing he's not going to do well. Just guessing that this is a guy who's entitled and violent And non compliant, uh, he's gonna wind up probably going to a pen eventually. Just guess. I mean, I don't know. I mean, (laughs) we'll see. Uh, Gotta get, he's gotta be convicted first. So, you know, innocent until proven guilty, right? Even though it's a long video. Um, So, yeah, and the ninth point, which I've already alluded to, is just the dispersal. And I would think that this is really the result of the normal process. So, you know, the the normal process by which they decide to, you know, put inmates in different facilities simply because they are all, from all around the country, they've been dispersed all across the prison, uh, all across the federal prison system. So those are the nine things that I learned through uh, going through this process. And I think that it actually really shows the thought and the care that has really gone into the process of deciding where these inmates are going to be housed. Um, do I think it's a great idea that there are so many of them at the lows? Well, no, but again, I'm not a prison professional. I don't, you know, I, I don't, I, I understand a little bit about the process because I, I've read the relevant regulations, but, um, you know, it seems like they're doing a pretty good job so far. So, unfortunately, you know, with the exception of, like, USB Atlanta, which, again, uh, is apparently being used as a kind of a short-stay facility, you know, pen beds are are certainly at a premium in the system. And a lot of inmates who wind up in the pen wind up earning their way into the penitentiary, not because of the severity of the incident offense, but rather because of management problems uh, when they are inside the system. So, you know, you get written up enough, you get enough shots, you get to go to the penitentiary. So, that is an ambition to which some of these inmates may certainly aspire. And so, given that so many of these inmates who are going to be housed for a long time within the federal prison system are people who have gang affiliations uh, and people who uh, were violent, right? Again, only a minority of January 6th inmates were violent, but of the inmates who have long sentences, they're going to comprise the majority. I thought it'd be interesting to kind of do a little guesswork with regard to the the designations process by uh, doing something of a case study. And so the case study example I'm going to use is Matthew Ryan Miller, baby macho man. Um, So Miller is a relatively young man. Uh, And he is a member of a paramilitary gang or a street gang or a drinking club or a bunch of racists, uh, the Proud Boys. And uh, the government uh, did calculations, you know, looking at, again, how to figure out the the severity of his crime. I don't want to get too deep into the weeds on this, but um, I was looking at the recommendations in the sentencing memo uh, for Matthew Ryan Miller. Quote, Defendant Miller's actions on January 6th show an absolute disregard for the rule of law coupled with a willingness to incite and engage in violence. His actions show a willingness to violate the law, to engage in acts of disorder and violence, and to harm others, including uniformed law enforcement. End quote. So, you know, the government was making an argument for a, a rather lengthy sentence for Miller. Um... Doing the math, Miller's score for his offense wound up being a 22, and the, the calculation of these scores is important for the designation process. Quote, Accordingly, based on the government's calculation of the defendant's total adjusted offense level, after his acceptance of responsibility, at 22 Miller's guidelines imprisonment range is 41 to 51 months imprisonment. Again, this is from the government's recommendations, trying to argue for a stiffer sentence for Miller. And I'll read a few excerpts, right? So we we talk about like some of the lenient sentences. For me, my main concern is that these AFO defendants wind up getting a lot of time. They deserve it, right? You look at the injuries, you look at the damage they cause not only to our democracy, but to officers, the Capitol itself, they deserve to get a lot of time. And I think that the government is making the cases here uh, and again, I'm using Miller as an example. Another quote you know, in support of this from the government's uh, memo, quote, the attack on the US Capitol on January 6, 2021, is a criminal offense unparalleled in American history. It represented a grave threat to our democratic norms. Indeed, it was one of the only times in our history when the building was literally occupied by hostile participants, by its very nature. The attack defies comparison to other events." Another one, quote, "...the attack on the U.S. Capitol buildings and grounds and all that it involved was an attack on the rule of law. The violence and destruction of property at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th showed a blatant and appalling disregard for institutions of government and the orderly administration of the democratic process. As with the nature and circumstances of the offense, this factor supports a sentence of incarceration. Finally, quote, The need to deter others is especially strong in cases involving domestic terrorism, which the breach of the Capitol certainly was. The demands of general deterrence weigh strongly in favor of incarceration, as they will for nearly every case arising out of the violent riot at the Capitol. End quote. So the government tried, right? You know, they 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 are certainly trying, especially for these AFO defendants, to get them the time that these defendants have earned. The problem is that you know it's not really the AOSA's fault. So Miller, like a lot of the other defendants, is really given getting a lot of benefit from the weight given to criminal history, and so. The fact that many of these defendants have very little criminal history uh, is working to mean that you think they wind up not getting a lot of time, right? They wind up with relatively low scores at sentencing and that has a lot of trickle-on and follow-on effects with regard to their eventual designation. So the government, I think, is, is taking the best shot at sentencing, but it's not really reflected in, in the classification. I don't think that they are necessarily... The system is not set up to adequately assess the nature of these offenses um, and to, to really, in my belief, put these people at, you know, really a slightly higher custody level. I'd probably be happy if more of them were at mediums than lows, uh, to tell you the truth. But especially AFO defendants, you know, um, I think that that's, that's a good place for them rather than putting them on a low... I mean, maybe when we get to someone like Avery McCracken or Ryan Sampson, we're going to see something different, right? Um, I think that there has been an inadequate assessment of the danger that the paramilitary gangs pose. Um, the, the system treats these defendants atomistically, d- despite the, the government's arguments that they should be treated collectively. But the system just inherently looks at your... Offense level, It looks at your criminal history and does it in kind of a vacuum. And so it's devoid of context. Um, and, you know, I mean, ultimately the, the January 6th defendants are being treated as this product of a, a series of bad individual decisions. And I don't think the whole, just looking at it holistically, it doesn't really take into account of the public safety factor of domestic terrorism, uh, the threat to democracy that's posed by this movement. So, Miller winds up going to Cumberland, which, you know, again, is a medium. I think is probably appropriate for someone like him. And that's why I chose him as the exemplar, precisely for this reason, because he is similar to many of the defendants in which uh, probably many of the listeners to this show will take uh, an interest. So far, um, medium-level facility is the highest custody level that we're, we're seeing any of these inmates get so far, right? With the exception of, you know, people who are, you know, being sent to an administrative-level facility for a very short sentence uh, or someplace like uh, Atlanta, which uh, apparently, you know, is operating uh, on, on a, well, some kind of basis, uh, some kind of unusual basis. Uh, there's one in Pennsylvania, actually, where they... They took it and they shut down. They wound up turning into a transit center. Maybe they wound up doing something similar in Atlanta. I, I'm not sure. Um, but we're going to see, you know, these these AFO inmates, you know, um, probably a lot of them are going to go to mediums uh, and some others to lows. So, uh, interestingly, uh, Miller, of course, uh, is going to Cumberland. He's at Cumberland, actually. And it was built back in 1994, so, you know, um, not the oldest facility in, in, in the system. Um, and it also housed Bernie Carrick and Jack Abramoff. So, you know, some interesting history there. Um, but that's, that's what I think we can expect moving forward. We're going to see, you know, these defendants being dispersed all across the country. Uh, they're going to try to put them in places that are close to their homes and that at any given point in time the ones that you're going to find who are in prison if you'll use the, the find an inmate function, are going to be the more serious criminals, the ones who have uh, violent offenses particularly, but also obstruction of an official proceeding, and the various other felony offenses, you know, uh, the civil disorder defi- offenses, things of that nature. any anyway, rate, thank you so much. I look forward to hearing uh, when we are going to have the next hearing. I'm anxiously awaiting The announcement of that Um, hopefully finally they will get to some of the interesting financial information from the green team I've been anxiously awaiting that this whole time and we have not really seen it Uh, but I think that that is something that would weigh heavily uh, into you know because again that's the same people who donated money for January 6th they're still the same people who are donating money for the uh, campaigns of these so-called America first candidates are running uh, as nominees of the Republican Party in the 2022 midterm elections. So, thank you so much for your listenership, and until next time, I uh, have a lovely weekend.